1: In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of Isaiah, chapters 28 through 30.
0: Verse 20, For the terrible one is brought to nothing, and the scoffer is consumed, and all that watch for iniquity are cut off who make a man for offender for a word and lay a snare for him who reproveth in the gate and turn aside the just for nothing therefore thus saith the Lord who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob Jacob shall not now be ashamed neither shall his face now grow pale but when he seeth his children and the work of mine hands in the midst of him they shall sanctify my name and sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and shall fear the God of Israel They also that erred in spirit shall come to understanding, and they that murmured shall learn doctrine. Now in chapter 30 we shift gears again. Isaiah is now going to focus again more locally. He's going to focus on this nonsense of making an alliance with Egypt in the response to the fears of Assyria. Isaiah's message to Hezekiah is, don't look to Egypt as an ally against Assyria, look to the God of hosts. The God of Israel is going to take care of the Assyrians. And Hezekiah has his knees a little wobbly here. Chapter 30, verse 1, Woe to the rebellious children, saith the Lord, who take counsel, but not of me, and who cover with a covering, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who walk to go down into Egypt and have not asked at my mouth to strengthen themselves in the strength of Pharaoh and to trust in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore shall the strength of Pharaoh be your shame, and the trust in the shadow of Egypt, your confusion. For his princes were at zone, and his ambassadors have come to Hannes. Hannes, by the way, is Thomas, the place that was featured in Raiders and Lost Ark, by the way, but that's neither here nor there. They were all ashamed of a people who could not profit them, or be in a helper or a prophet, but a shame and also a reproach. Now, as we read this, of course, Isaiah is talking to Hezekiah and his following about the futility of looking to Egypt as an alliance against the Assyrians. No problem. And we read that with a great comfortable distraction. Because that's Hezekiah and that was back then and he had his problems. Let's pause for a second and realize that the Holy Spirit put this here for you and I tonight. Don't we do the same thing? Right now some of this audience have certain fears. They may be professional, they may be financial. They may be any of a number of different complexions. To whom are we turning to protect ourselves or defend ourselves against those attacks? Let's read it again and imagine ourselves and recognize the idiom of Egypt is identified elsewhere in the scripture idiomatically of the world, right? We're delivered out of the world, aren't we? We're pilgrims. We're not earth dwellers. Woe to the rebellious children, whoops, that may be us, who take counsel but not of me and who cover with a covering, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who walk to go down into Egypt, have not asked at my mouth, and to strengthen themselves with the strength of Pharaoh, and to trust in the shadow of Egypt. Scary. Because we all run the risk of doing this, looking to the world to solve our problems, and not the Lord. There's a balance issue here, too. But the point is, there's a major fear, a major challenge. Make sure that you're Refuge is in the God of the universe, and not the world. That was the error they made, and the error that we might be cautioned about. You see, they're in effect here turning to their former enemy for an alliance. It wasn't that long ago that Moses brought them out of Egypt? Now they're looking to Egypt to support them against the Assyrians. Verse six: The burden of the beasts of the Negev into the land of trouble and anguish. From where come the young and the old lion, the viper, and the fiery flying serpent? They will carry their riches upon the shoulders of young asses and their treasures upon the humps of camels to a people who shall not profit them. For the Egyptians shall help in vain and to no purpose. Therefore have I cried concerning this. Their strength is to sit still. Now go, write it before them on a tablet and note it in a book that it may be for the time to come forever and ever. That this is a rebellious people, lying children, children who will not hear the law of the Lord. You know, I think, that in Deuteronomy, what you did with rebellious children? You stoned them. I've often been tempted to try and force that uh, in more recent years, but uh, it's probably not appropriate. But it's interesting, it clearly, though, applies idiomatically at least to the thing we're talking about here. For the Egyptians shall help in vain and do no purpose, therefore have I cried concerning this, their strength is to sit still. Now by the way, some texts here say, speak of Rahab, that I've called a Rahab who sits still. And some of your texts may have that. Rahab, believe it or not, happens to be a root from which is an old name for Egypt. Don't confuse it with the Rahab of Jericho, the capital of the Amorites. That's just a coincidence in a sense. The word Rahab, the Hebrew root is also turns out to be an ancient name for Egypt, but some of your texts may or may not have the word Rahab there. The word actually is a root that alludes to pride and arrogance, okay? And it was an old name for Egypt, for whatever that's worth. Verse 8, Now go, write it before them on a tablet, wrote in a book that it may be for the time to come forever and ever. This is a rebellious people, lying children, children who will not hear the law of the Lord, who say to the seers, See not. And to the prophets, Prophesy not unto us right things, speak unto us smooth things. Prophesy deceits. Now obviously he's being sarcastic, or however you want to say it. That's not literally what they're saying, but that's in effect what they're saying. And we do the same thing. We do the same thing. I think J. Vernon McGee used to say that he can fill his churches when he teaches Revelation and he empties them when he teaches Romans. You see? We love to hear things that are exciting and up. Right? You announce the right topic and this place is full. Right? But we can announce a topic of the consequences of sin or something of that nature and it would be amazing how many conflicts develop on Wednesday night. We all do this. Prophesy not unto us right things, speak unto us smooth things. Prophesy deceits. Of course, the very fact that you're here proves that you're exceptions. I understand. I'm not kidding. I mean that sincerely. I said it facetiously, but I meant it sincerely. Verse 11. Get out of the way, turn aside out of the path, cause the Holy One of Israel to cease from before us. This again is Isaiah continuing in a sarcastic vein. Wherefore, thus saith the Holy One of Israel, because ye despise this word and trust in oppression and perverseness and rely on them... Therefore, this iniquity shall be to you as a breach ready to fall, swelling out in a high wall whose breaking cometh suddenly in an instant. He's alluding to something visually you and I never see. If you were in that day and you depended militarily on the integrity of your walls around the city, see a breach of the wall from a battering or something would start to create a bulge and eventually break through. Do you follow me? And unless you've seen it in movies, you know, you and I, we we don't normally encounter that in our regular life. They would be very sensitive to that. So he's saying, when he says, the iniquity shall be to you as a breach ready to fall, that's a graphic idiom that would be familiar to them. Because there's the wall they're counting on, they see it start to buckle, bulge, if you will, you see. Swelling out in a high wall, whose breaking cometh suddenly in an instant. See, he's speaking graphically of something that's common to them but foreign to us. Verse 14, and he shall break it as the breaking of the potter's vessel that is broken in pieces. That's an idiom very familiar, biblical idiom, isn't it? From Romans 9 and Psalm 2, we have, he shall dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. He shall not spare, so that there shall not be found in the bursting of it a shard to take fire from the hearth or to take water out of the pit. In other words, the pieces that are left are too small to be usable. Like a potter's vessel is broken. It's not only broken but the pieces are too small to have any secondary purpose that's another way of what i believe is the sense of the passage so isaiah continues verse 15 for thus saith the lord god the holy one of israel in returning and rest shall ye be saved in quietness and in confidence shall be your strength and ye would not john and i were just talking today about the most difficult task that the lord puts before us the most difficult task if the Lord asked you to leave this building knowing that when you left the steps that you'd be shot by some enemies, you would do it right now, wouldn't you? The Lord doesn't ask you to do that. He asks you to wait. Ah. You know, let's get on with it. Let's do whatever it is. Lord, give me some heroic thing to do. Let me die for you. No, no, no. You're going to have to live for me. Oh, do I really? I mean, that's tougher. Interesting. Waiting on the Lord. We're going to talk about this a little more as it goes here. Thus saith the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, returning and rest shall ye be saved. In quietness and in confidence shall be your strength, but ye would not. He wants you to wait on the Lord. Boy, that's a tough thing to do. I want to get on with it. I personally am a hyperactive guy. Ready, fire, aim, you know. But he said, no, for we will flee upon horses. Therefore shall ye flee. And we will ride upon the swift. Therefore, those who pursue you will be swift. Do you see the irony? He's talking, of course, he's talking to Judah here. He's saying, but he's saying, said, we will flee upon horses. That's the reaction. He says, yeah, you're going to flee all right. And we will ride upon the swift. That's right. Those that are chasing you are going to be swift. When I read this, I'm reminded of the two campers. These two campers are up in the mountains. And up ahead in the trail, up out of the brush, looms a big bear. Immediately one of the campers dropped off his pack and pulled out his tennis shoes and tied them up. His buddy says, you don't think you can outrun that bear, do you? He says, I don't have to. I just got to outrun you. (laughs) (laughs) You say you'll flee upon horses. God says, you'll flee all right. Well, we'll ride upon the swift. That's right. Those who pursue you will be swift. One thousand shall flee at the rebuke of one, and the rebuke of five shall ye flee, until ye be left like a beacon on the top of a mountain, and like an ensign on the hill. Notice verse 18. Therefore will the Lord wait, that he may be gracious unto you, and therefore will he be exalted, that he may have mercy upon you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all they that wait for him that's one of those verses unless you're reading carefully you sort of just slip through let's look at it carefully the Lord is waiting on you to do what? to wait on him when you read verse 18 I want you to hear his foot tapping see I want you to hear the Lord's foot tapping because he's waiting on you to wait on him therefore will the Lord wait that he may be gracious unto you Therefore will he be exalted that he may have mercy upon you, for the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all they that wait upon him. You see, he's waiting for us to wait on him so that he can show himself gracious to you. I love the expression that Romaine gave me some time ago. It just echoes in my ears. Don't let the tyranny of self-sufficiency rob you of the miraculous. Don't let the tyranny of self-sufficiency or self-reliance rob you of the miraculous. How often it is that God would like to bless you, but you jump the gun and get something second-rate when he had something first-rate that he was ready to lay on your life. Yeah, that's why I like this expression, the grand adventure, because that's what we're talking about. A relationship, a dialogue, a a, a, a interaction with the God of the universe. What adventure could be greater than that? Verse 19, for the people shall dwell in Zion and Jerusalem, thou shalt weep no more. He will be very gracious unto thee at the voice of thy cry. When he, he shall hear it, he will answer thee. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet shall not thy teachers be removed into a corner anymore, but thine eyes shall see thy teachers, and thine ears shall hear a word behind thee, saying, This is the way, walk ye in it, when ye turn to the right hand and when ye turn to the left. Ye shall defile also the covering of thy carved images of silver and the ornament of thy melted images of gold. Thou shalt cast them away like an unclean cloth. Thou shalt say unto it, Get thee hence." and here's one of those places I do have to correct your excessively polite English translation it's not an unclean cloth remember Isaiah's vocabulary in the Hebrew that's a used menstrual cloth it's interesting that Isaiah here is talking to Hezekiah idolatry was encouraged in fact almost enforced by Hezekiah's predecessor Ahaz Right? Hezekiah gets rid of the idols and destroys them. Okay, he forbid idol worship. In fact, one of the most interesting things to highlight, turn to 2 Kings 18, which alludes to this very thing. 2 Kings 18. 18 speaks of the ascendancy of Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, verse 2, and so on. In verse 3, he did that which is right in the sight of the Lord according to all that David, his father, did. David, that is, you know, not literally, father, you know, like forebearer. Not father like adjacent, but father as a progenitor. Verse 4, he removed the high places, that is the idol groves. He broke the images, he cut down the idols, and he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. 690 years earlier... In the wilderness, Numbers 21, there was a plague of serpents. And you all know how God had Moses make a brass serpent, put it on a pole, probably a cross. And everybody that looked to the brazen serpent was healed of the vipers, those that didn't died. Very strange event that occurred in Numbers 21. And of course, Jesus makes us conscious of this because in John 3, when he talks to Nicodemus, he makes allusion. Because as... Moses raised the brazen serpent in the wilderness, so shall the Son of Man be raised up. What does he mean by that? Anyone that looks to him will be saved, in effect. You see the idiom. And, of course, that brazen serpent becomes a legend that becomes the Aesculapius idiom for doctors even today. The army of corps engineers have screwed it up because it isn't one serpent, it's two serpents on their little cross. They didn't do the homework. Two serpents is the god of Hermes, the god of commerce. But, uh, anyway... The brazen serpent that Moses had made and unto those days the children of Israel did burn incense to it. Now what happened, see, for 690 years, see, long after it had served its purpose in Numbers 21, it became a fetish. It became an idol. This is why I'm so worried about things like the Shroud of Turin or splinters from the Ark of Noah and all those things that float around. Because they're dangerous. Not because they're not authentic. I'm not saying the Shroud of Turin is authentic. I'm saying even if it were authentic. You follow me. It's dangerous. Here's a brazen serpent. It wasn't a copy. It wasn't a counterfeit. It was the brazen serpent. Yet it was dangerous. It became an idol. 690 years later, Hezekiah, in verse 4 here, for 2 Kings 18, called it Nehushtan, a piece of brass. And he crushed it into dust to stop the idol worship. In this case, there's no question of authenticity. See, all these things that take you away from the Word of God are Satan's tool. Anything that gets in the way of your relationship with Jesus Christ, of your direct participation in his word, is something that Satan can use. Even if it's the authentic brazen serpent. Or even if it is uh, fill-in-the-blank, whatever. It becomes a fetish. Okay, back to Isaiah, verse 23. Then shall he give the rain for thy seed with which thou shalt sow the ground and the bread of the increase of the earth and it shall be fat and plenteous. and that day shall thy cattle feed in large pastures the oxen likewise and the young asses the ground shall eat clean provender which hath been winnowed with the shovel and with the fan and there shall be upon every high mountain upon every high hill rivers and streams of waters in the day of the great slaughter when the towers fall moreover the light of the moon shall be like the light of the sun and the light of the sun shall be sevenfold like the light of seven days in the day that the Lord bindeth up the breach of his people and healeth the stroke of their wound. I assume that's millennial. I have no idea what that means. I thought I'd just pick one verse in the Bible I at least don't have a conjecture about. <laughs> Write it down, yeah. <laughs> I resemble that remark. <laughs> Well, actually <laughs> Go for it. Barry Setterfield in Australia, the physicist and uh, Trevor Norman, the mathematician, have disturbed the physics world by suggesting for some reasons why the speed of light may have slowed down in history. It's widely contested by many physicists, and yet starting to get accepted by some others, so it's an interesting area. But the point is, if the speed of light was going faster back, then, maybe things were brighter. Maybe there were more stars visible. And the whole idea that the speed of light slowed down after Genesis 3 is, is appealing to me because that's when I think entropy was introduced. And the speed of light and entropy is a, is a product, it's is Planck's constant, it's a constant. So the idea of the speed of light slowing down may explain the whole idea of entropy, the curse, and that's all in the Genesis tapes if you're interested. But the point is, in all of that, if in the re- reestablishment of the millennium, maybe if you can get rid of the entropy, maybe light will go faster, see, and maybe that's what that's talking about. So it's just a thought. That's a conjecture. <laughs> And what I don't know I make up, you know. (laughs) Verse twenty seven Behold, the name of the Lord cometh from far, burning with his anger, and the burden of it is heavy, his lips are full of indignation, and his tongue like a devouring fire, and his breath like an overflowing stream, shall reach to the midst of the neck to sift the nations with the sieve of vanity. And there shall be a bridle or I may say hooks. In the jaws of the people causing them to err. The word bridle, the word hooks in Ezekiel 38 are the same essential Hebrew word. It's hooks in the jaws in Ezekiel 38. It's a bridle like a -a hackamore here. Same idea. Verse 29, you shall have a song as in the night when a holy solemnity is kept and a gladness of heart as when one goeth with a flute to come into the mountain of the Lord to the mighty one of Israel. And interestingly enough, the word mighty one there is in the Hebrew, the word rock. Kind of interesting, isn't it? When the Lord shall cause his glorious voice to be heard and shall show the lightning down of his arm with the indignation of his anger and with the flame of a devouring fire with scattering and tempest and hailstones. It always interests me that when God judges, he uses hailstones. And the climactic example of that, of course, is in Revelation where I think, what are they, 200-pound hailstones, Falling on the world. You know what happens if you have a few golf balls hit your airplane? You know, it kind of messes things up. Can you imagine hailstones that weigh 100, 200 pounds? That's the climate, one of the climactic judgments of the book of Revelation, right? What's God judging the book of Revelation? Blasphemy, right? Interesting. What does God ordain in Israel in the Torah as the punishment for blasphemy? Stoning. Interesting. You've got to be kidding, Chuck. It sounds like a pun. Yes, it is. The Holy Spirit uses puns. God will judge the earth by stoning. Interesting. Verse 31, For through the voice of the Lord shall the Assyrian be beaten down who smote with a rod. And again, I'll remind you of a very conjectural possibility. The word Assyrian here, of course, locally, specifically, is the leader of the Assyrians conquering the northern kingdom. Don't misunderstand me. But there are many places in the Bible where I'm beginning to suspect the term Assyrian is also used as a title of the coming one, the coming world leader. Not that he's Assyrian background, but just as an idiom, like the prince that shall come, like the man of sin, like the son of perdition, like the willful king, etc., Possibility. Anyway, verse 32. And in every place where the grounded staff shall pass, which the Lord shall lay upon him, it shall be with timbrels and harps, and in the battles of shaking shall he fight with it. For Topheth is ordained of old, yea, for the king it is prepared. He hath made it deep and large. The pile of it is fire with much wood. The breath of the Lord, like a stream of brimstone, doth kindle it. A couple of background items. Topheth is the lowest part of the Valley of Hinnom. If you recall the topomat that we used when we studied this area, there's a valley, north-south valley, called the Kidron Valley. To the east is the Mount of Olives, and to the west is Mount Moriah, another little valley called the Tropian Valley, and then Mount Zion. Along the southern edge of Jerusalem, there is the Hinnom Valley, The Hinnom Valley had two historical aspects to it. One was, it was a place they located the idol called Moloch. Moloch was this bronze idol with his arms outstretched. And the worship of Moloch involved putting your children as infants in his arms while he burned. I presume he got red hot. When they speak of child sacrifice, that was the god Moloch when they went through this period in Israel's history, it was located in the Hinnom Valley at the lowest part. That lowest part carried the name Topheth. The Hinnom Valley also, in later history, became a city dump. It was the place they threw the refuse. And if you know how that happens, the refuse smolters and burns. Spontaneous combustion, et cetera, it smol- smolders all the time. That gave rise to an idiom of Gehenna, that Jesus uses as an expression, as a word, to connote the everlasting end in the outer darkness, the lake that burneth with fire and brimstone. Not Hades, not hell, because they're temporary. In Revelation, we see Hades and Sheol cast into Gehenna. But anyway, that all comes up from the Hinnom Valley. So that was the location of the image of Moloch, Tophet. Now it says, "For the king, it is prepared." The word for king is melech, but the vowels are pointed. Melech and Moloch are the same consonants. So there may also be a pun of sorts in Basin. See, Topheth is ordained of old. Yea, for Moloch it is prepared. He hath made it deep and large. The pile of it is a fire and much wood. And the breath of the Lord, like a stream of brimstone, doth kindle it. Heavy-duty stuff. Okay, got to 31. Not bad. Next time, we'll talk about the Lord defending Jerusalem. We'll talk about the day of the Lord's coming up in Armageddon in chapter 34. So we're going to have a lot of, you know, kingdom stuff happening here. Book of Isaiah. We're in in a heavy part. And a few more chapters of this, and then we'll have a four-chapter interlude where we'll discover some fascinating things about our friend Hezekiah. And then we get to chapter 40. Chapter 40, in some respects, is a turning point. Chapter 40 on is a different ball game i can hardly wait
1: you've been listening to 6640 the ministry outreach of koinonia house and koinonia institute today's bible teacher was chuck missler teaching through the book of isaiah download the new k house tv app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources visit the Apple or Android app store, or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.